Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Guadam is an internationally recognized expert in leadership and innovation. He has been everything from an Ivy League professor to a podcast host. Guadam received his PhD from MIT in political science and an AB in government from Harvard, and since then has followed his many interests wherever they take him. He has served on numerous councils in the worlds of politics, biotechnology, art, and economics, including the Council of Foreign Relations, the Chief of Naval Operations Executive Advisory Panel, the New England Regional Selection Committee for the White House Fellowship, the Museum Council of Boston's Museum of Fine Arts, and the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council and New Models of Leadership, among many others. He is on the Board of Directors and Chair of the Mentorship Committee of the Upakar Foundation, a nonprofit providing scholarships to underprivileged students of South Asian descent. He has been a research fellow at Harvard and the American Assembly, as well as a principal investigator on the National Science Foundation's Synthetic Biology Engineering Research Center grant. With far-reaching passions and areas of expertise, it should come as no surprise as Guadam has been a Jeopardy champion. He is also the author of two books, Indispensable, When Leaders Really Matter, and the forthcoming Picking Presidents. He has published articles on everything from leadership to politics and beyond in Harvard Business Review, Slate, Fast Company Politics, and the Life Sciences, and many more. His work has been profiled in the New York Times, Atlantic, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and many more distinguished publications. He also advises a variety of companies and organizations on leadership and strategy. Guadam often jokes that his life's ambition is to have the world's most confusing resume and that he's most of the way there. Godam, welcome to the One Away Show. Brian, it's a pleasure to be here with you. I, I appreciate you responding randomly to my reach out to say, you know, you joined me for this, um, but we are here. Um, what is the One Away moment that you want to share with us today? So... I think anyone, uh, anyone's probably got a bunch of different ones, but the one that leaps to mind more than any other uh, was the first time I met Professor Clayton Christensen. At, you know, so he was a professor at Harvard Business School, and he wrote The Innovator's Dilemma. I'm sure almost any of your listeners will be familiar with his work. And so uh, when I met Clay, I was, I think, a first-year student in a political science PhD program at MIT. And so I was, you know, I was 25. I left McKinsey after two years to go do a PhD. And, you know, I have to say probably makes anyone who, anyone who hears that question my decision-making pretty profoundly. Um, and so I was there and Clay's work obviously had this incredible impact on the business world, but I was studying national security matters. I was studying them and where I was studying the military and, and how, how national security decision-making and so I wanted to try and understand if you could use his ideas to and to try and explain what happens with militaries in situations where, you know, a stronger, better equipped military can be defeated by a seemingly weaker, less capable one. And this was 2004. It wasn't that long after 9-11. We had troops in Afghanistan and Iraq. So obviously the contemporary relevance of that idea was pretty profound, right? And so I started thinking about his ideas and how to apply them. And as I was working on them, started to started to modify and build on them a little bit. And it turned out we had a mutual friend, uh, actually a friend of mine who was working for a company Clay founded. And he said, you know, you should you should go meet you should go meet Clay. And you know, those days I was Professor Christensen. It took him like two years to get him to call me Clay to get me to call him Clay. Um, and so I said, you know, okay, like I, I should I should meet I should meet you know the most famous business school professor in the world. Yeah, that that happens every day. Um, and so I go, and there are two things you got to know about, about Clay. So the first one is there's no doubt in my mind as a first-year graduate student that I was the least important person he met that month, right? Like, like that was, he was, he, that was, you know, he was on the board of Intel. Like, the, he was just, you know, that's his, the sort of stratosphere in which he had, uh, he had earned his way into by being this incredibly brilliant thinker, right? And the second thing you got to know is he was 6'9". Um, so <laughs> I am, I would say not a small man, but I was more than a foot shorter than he was. Mm -hmm. I felt like a hobbit. Um, 
And so I walk into his office and, you know, look up and then keep looking up and realize just <laughs> that, that my friend had neglected to inform me of the, this particular fact about him. And we start chatting and I start, you know, somewhat nervously start taking him through not just the set of ideas of how I'd applied his theories, but how I started to like push them a little bit and modify, you know, not build on them in a way to get them to apply to the militaries, which are incredibly different from businesses. And so the third thing you got to know about Clay to understand this meeting is that most senior faculty who are introduced to a random grad student who tells them, you know, I want to I've been playing with your life's work and adapting it and changing it would not be big fans of this idea, right? Like that's, that, that's, that's not, a, that's not a trivial thing to say to someone who isn't, hasn't just spent his, his, you know, the last year of his, of his life building this idea, but had demonstrated that it was the most important, most maybe the most important idea in business thinking in a generation. Right. But that's not Clay Christensen. Now, the third thing that made me Clay special is he started to listen and he sat down and I started to talk through some of the ideas, especially about how you define what it meant to be a disruptive innovation and different concepts of his theories. And he said, let's talk about that some more. And then we started to engage and we ended up spending an hour going back and forth and pushing back and forth on his ideas and how to think about how to think about them and things like that. And by the end of the hour, I'd realized that this wasn't just an incredibly accomplished human being. Mm. He was an incredibly wise human being. He was the sort of person who you want to go to, you want their advice, right? Like even after an hour meeting him, you're sort of, of, this is the sort of person whose guidance any person should seek out in life. Mm. And so, you know, I, I, I had been in the private sector. I, and now I was in grad school, but I didn't really, I really ever planned on being a professor. I was doing a PhD because I really liked exploring ideas and kind of assumed that after my PhDs, something would work itself out. And so I said, you know, professor Christensen, I would love your advice if you have any thoughts as to what you think I should do next after after I finish my PhD. It's a long way away. You know, I'm only a first year, but whenever I do finish, if you have any ideas, I'd love to hear them. And he looks down at me, literally, and says, I think you should come teach at Harvard Business School. And I went, what? He says, no, I, I, think, I think you should be a professor at Harvard Business School. I think we should talk about that. And I said, you know, okay, like, you know, I was a political scientist. I didn't, didn't, I never didn't even know that business schools hired political scientists. And I just said, sure, let's, let's talk about that. And he said, yeah, you'd stay in touch. And, and I left and, and, you know, that I turned to the turn to my friend who had introduced us afterwards. And I said, did that just happen? And he said, yeah, you should, you should probably take him up on that. Um, I said, yeah, yeah, I think I will. <laughs> and, and so that started the process by which six years later, I ended up on the Harvard Business School faculty. So then so my first published paper came out of that meeting. Um, one of my best friends in the world, he actually spoke at my wedding was Clay's, is Clay's oldest son now. Just like literally my entire life went on a completely different and completely unpredictable course because of that one encounter. Oh, chills. I was very lucky in that he was, you know, he, I would say is he's, he was a person of towering stature, even greater intellect and more impressive than either of those was the greatness of his soul. He passed away. Um, he passed away two years. I actually think it was, uh, just by coincidence, I think years ago today, at least I know two years, two years ago today was when I heard he was both the greatest and the best person I've, I've ever had the honor of knowing. And, you know, he became my friend and mentor for the next the last for the last I guess, the last fifteen years of his life after that meeting. Well, what is well one? What a special way to honor him today. And two, I the weird time we didn't know what we were going to talk about fifteen minutes ago, and it's a you know might be the two year anniversary. Where where yeah. things happened? Uh, well, one, I appreciate you sharing the just the journey, and and maybe you know I think two things I was hearing. It's your openness to and bravery to like go in and share and go back and forth on his work, but then also his ability to see you and say, my ideas are, might be good, but why can't they be challenged or why can't someone else make them better? And like that curiosity was probably what was a part of what made him so great in that relationship, but the dynamic you guys shared made each other better. I mean, what, what a special relationship it sounds like you guys built. It really was. I mean, he, he was unique. Um, he, he kept a sign up in his office um, that said anomalies wanted. And what he meant was, and he was very rare in this. And there, there are a handful of other people I know who are like this and all, and this are uniformly, if you are like this, you are one of the most impressive people I will ever meet in my, you know, you, you will ever meet. 
um, who what he wanted more, you know, he what he loved was when someone told them, told him, you know, I think you're wrong. Hmm. And I think he, I found a mistake because that's when he was starting to learn something and he loved mm-hmm. learning things. Right. And so he, 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 if you, if you just sat, sat there and said, well, you must be right about everything, then well, he already knew that, right? Like, like he didn't, he's, he's not, he's not going to get anything from that. Right. He didn't need his ego stroked. Right. Um, what he wanted to do what he wanted to do was get better. You don't need a lot of people like that. You really don't need a lot of people like that of his stature. Yeah. Uh, and when you do, you know, they're unique. Um, you know, someone else is like that uh, is, uh, is Stan McChrystal. Yeah, I've heard Crystal. Great, great things about him. Yeah, wow. he, he is he 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 is like that too. He cultivates that. That he wants someone to come in and tell him, you know, I think you're wrong. So there. So on that, one of the first people I had on this podcast was two years ago. Um, her name was Jesse Craig. And before running content at first round reviews, she worked on his book launch, and she talked about like coming into a arena that she'd never like worked in, like giving an opportunity and a platform to go do really good work. And like it sounds like you know kind of leadership and open-mindedness. And also I want to build on something you just said. Um, I'm almost through with the book called The Psychology of Money. Have you, have you read it? I don't know that one. It's really good. It's written by Morgan Housel, who's an investor. And, um, but he talked to this chapter in the book and he, it says, you know, people are optimists. Like, that's great. Like being positive about situations, but like good leaders and people listen when actually they're pushed against. So there's the, the, the critic, right? Because that's where like most learning can come from. And it sounds like Clay uh, really valued that. And it's cool that you, it seems like you were able to, to, to do that for him. So a question I want to ask you is to kind of set the stage even more is, you know, you read his book and then you're inspired to go talk to him and you did it. I'm sure it was scary as heck, obviously led to something super meaningful, but two things. One what led you to your interest in national security and the poli-sci realm? And then what led you to the book where you had the kind of synapse connection that said, wow, I, I need to go do this. Like, what, give us, give us more backstory. So the interest in national security, you know, I wish I had a better answer for you than it always fascinated me. I always, um, I, I like, I, I loved history. I loved military history. Um, I loved, always loved politics. I grew up outside Washington, D.C., and something about it just spoke to me. And I, I didn't realize that this was something a person could study, except, you know, I thought it was a hobby until I was in college and took a class on political science called War and Politics. And I'm sort of, you know, that seemed like a fun, like my, that was like my fun class for the semester. Uh, and I just went, wait, you know, there are people who do this all the time. And that was, that was fascinating and just and enlightening. And suddenly I went, wait, you know, I could, I could do this all the time too, right? Um, let, let me start studying that. And then I got to know people in the, you know, it got to know the, you know, people more and more people in the military. And when I just was, I just liked them. Right. I mean, um, so I, they, they, with something about the personality type of people who decided they wanted to serve their country just clicked with me. And so, um, I mean, some of my oldest and best friends in the world were the military officers who would get, spend a year when I was in college, they would get, they would spend a year studying there as well. And somehow they would always end up adopting me. Mm-hmm. Um, I always said, you know, the, the two best, the two great things is, you know, they all, they, they always bought the beer and they were always the most interesting people you would meet. Right. Um, and in fact, the, the idea that eventually became the core of my first and second books was the product of a conversation with an army colonel in a bar at Harvard, in Harvard square. Um, mm-hmm. I, I still remember that, um, when he and I were chatting about stuff in the, in the army and the way officers were selected, and that planted a seed in my head that became my first two books. So that conversation would have been 2001. So 11 years later is when the, when the book came out. Wow. I, you know, I don't have an interest, a, a more coherent answer for where the interest comes from other than it just spoke to something pretty deep inside me mm. um, that fascinated, that I always found fascinating. It sounds like you were always just extremely curious around innovation or things of that nature in the army or national security, given the complexities and the global ramifications of doing it right or wrong. You know, it's a very curious, it seems like you really dove into that with a lot of uh, deriving a lot of insight. So the two things I'd say that have always fascinated me. Um, so, you know, I, I grew up thinking I was going to be a physicist um, and ended up not doing that, but was I think what really intrigued me about it was the science and technology side. So the two things that have fascinated me, pretty much the, the thread through almost everything in my professional life are innovation and leadership, 
right? Trying to understand those two things. And sometimes it's trying to understand how they relate quite often, actually. But those two things are sort of where sort of the, the big uh, driving passion for me. I always say that thinking about innovation is the one thing in the world where reading science fiction actually becomes a professionally relevant hobby. Um, and I read a lot of science fiction, so it, it took my fun time and made it productive. But um, but more seriously, innovation is what makes the world work. Um, so when you look at economics research, so there's a wonderful book by David Warsh called Knowledge and the Wealth of Nations, where one of the things he he demonstrates is that economics has not until very recently sort of grappled with the fact that almost all economic growth comes from something that economists barely studied at all, innovation. Just to give you a, a sense of this, right? There, the standard model for economic growth for a very long time was called the solo growth factor model, and it had different inputs that would go into, and they were sort of, and they were supposed to predict economic growth, right? So, like land and labor and capital, and they will go in. And so, the thing that didn't predict, the the thing that wasn't input into the model, was the the, people, the economists would call the residual, right? The stuff the model doesn't predict. That's the residual. And the assumption was always that the residual was innovation, okay? The residual is more than 90% of economic growth. So the model explained less than 10%. It's, it's, it, it was the residual that was the other 90%. Yeah. Um, right? So if you want to understand the world, really anything about the world, you have to start with, with, with some innovation. They're, they're, it, it is the dominant it is the dominant underlying force, I would argue, for all of human history. And oh. if you don't, if you don't handle on that, you don't have a handle on anything. Oh, yeah. um, but innovation is not uh, is not an impersonal force, right? It is a product. We forget over and over again of choices. Innovation didn't have to go the way that it that that we remembered historically. That was not ordained by nature. People chose that. People made those choices, and they could have made different ones. But you know, the Chinese invented gunpowder hundreds of years before it was used before it was militarily significant. Um, there's a there's a wonderful book called Japan Gives Up the Gun about how Japan managed to keep fire or the, the Japanese government and the Japanese social structure managed to keep firearms of Japan for centuries and maintain the social structure that would have been disrupted if you would, if, if, if firearms had been had been widely distributed through Japanese society right technology is a product not just of underlying science of the underlying science but of choices that people make and that's where leadership comes into it too and why I've, I'm probably a big part of why I've been fascinated by leadership and of course, if you're looking at the intersection of innovation and science technology and leadership you can't do better than looking at militaries which are literally the cutting edge of both things um, I've spent a lot of time uh, working with people at West Point, and I spent a big chunk of my career teaching at Harvard Business School. And my, uh, one of my former students is the head of the leadership de leadership department at West Point, and he always uh, says that he's uh, he's a PhD at HBS with me, and he always says that right those are America's two preeminent leadership institutions: one military and one civilian. Hmm. Um, that I, I would say that's probably a little too flattering to Harvard Business School, but. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> <laughs> but but he's not entirely wrong either. Um, and so they're the two places that I, you know, two places I've been lucky enough to have to have some extent, some, you know, some extended contact with in various ways, in various shapes and guises. Um and so though those two things are incredibly powerful uh forces in the world. And they this I think often determine much of what happens in the world. So circle back, Ryan, to your original question is where did clay stuff come from? Well. At the time, the military was itself was very interested in trying to apply Clay's ideas to its strategic dilemmas, mm -hmm. right? Because obviously, people in the military understood that they were a much more powerful, much more technically sophisticated force fighting against a much less powerful, much less technologically sophisticated enemy that somehow was doing very well, mm -hmm. right? So you would not think in a battle between the United States military and the Taliban or Al Qaeda that it would, you know, that's a very lopsided correlation of forces. But we were still struggling. Hmm. And there was a feeling in the military that Clay's theories tended might might be able to explain. And if it could explain it, might be able to help help us solve the problem. Hmm. Um, in fact, if you know the, you know, every four years the United the military does a quadrennial defense review, right? That's called the DR, where they kind of lay out what American military strategy is and how to, what are the big challenges we'll face and things like that. So in the QDR that came out about about that time. There actually was a, a two by two threat matrix that described right four different types of threats the United States was likely to face, 
And one of those was disruptive. And so I actually asked the person who wrote it, did you mean, was that a reference to Clay's theories? And he said explicitly, yes, it was. Hmm. If you work with the military a lot, uh, and I'm, you know, I would say that, I, that this is something I do out, out of sort of patriotism and affection, right? Like, like you know, I think it's important that we have a strong military, and I also do because I, I just like these guys. We just we get along for whatever reason, uh, and so I want to help. You know that someone, unfortunately, the United States military has a tendency to swallow every management fad hole that comes across its desk. Not always with you know analyzing it very well. Hmm. And so my initial concern was that this was a management fad that they had swallowed whole and, you know, I needed to figure out, you know, what was the problem here. But as I got into it, I discovered that Clay's theories, unlike a lot of stuff that, you know, makes its way through the management world, was incredibly well thought out and incredibly well founded, right? It was grounded in really deep research, was, was thought through. It was, it was at the standard of really good work, not the standard of, you know, the 10,000 hour rule that you might, that you might get in a book from an airport bookstore. And so that meant that it might actually have something pretty important to say about these, about, about you know, mil- the problems the military was facing. But militaries and businesses are different. My shorthand for this is always that, you know, if your military is turning a profit, you have a problem, not, not a signature of strength, right? Like that, your military is not supposed to be a profitable institution. That is a, that is a concern. Hmm. Um, and so you can't just take the theory and apply it blindly. Right. You really have to get down to the nuts and bolts and understand how it works. And, mm. and only by doing that can you do the hard work of porting it over and trying to get, you know, okay, does this really speak to the challenges the military faces? And I'll tell you as an example, in that QDR where the in that two-by-two two matrix, one of the four boxes was labeled disruptive, they had labeled the wrong box, right? The things they were describing as disruptive were not disruptive in the sense that Clayton Christensen would use that word. And that's a big problem, because if you think that a threat is a Christensen-type disruption and it isn't, your response to it will be exactly wrong. It is profoundly different types of responses to one type of threat and another, as his theory dictates. And if you you misidentify it, you you will fail. Wow. Okay. Uh, one that I, as you said, profound, the word profound in my, my head was, was running and it makes so much sense about just the analyzing of the situation. I appreciate you tying the interest together in the work and kind of how it led to one another, but then also like the important note, like I loved what you said. It's like, what's the application of the theory? And if it's done wrong, it might have catastrophic, you know, consequences versus, you know, getting to the nuts and bolts and really analyzing it. And it's cool that you've been able to kind of play this maybe intermediary type of kind of give this view to help maybe drive important decisions. Uh, I don't want to project, but you know, it sounds like you've really been at the forefront of some of these incredible opportunities with the military using your kind of business background. Something that came to mind, and then I want to eventually skip forward from that conversation. But one thing I, I, I want to ask, and I don't want to assume, but you know, it seems like you really take work and you chew it up and you, you just learn and at a granular level. And someone like Clay, you know, a lot of great theories in the book, you know, big concepts. Do you think part of the reason that you and him were maybe able to hit it off so well at that first meeting is because you were able to take a body of work and maybe challenge it to the application on the ground floor of how this applied? I mean, what do you think it was about that meeting with him that really can create the connective tissue for a future relationship? I, my guess is there were two things, right? So one is what I really like to do, and I think this is a product of both having some, you know, gro- having grown up wanting to be a phys- physicist and then, tr- and then training in sort of political science theory, which really drives you towards abstract abstraction, is what, what I like to do is take a theory, take a set of ideas, and make them make them as abstract as possible, by which I mean make them as general as possible, right? So Clay had a bunch of theories about businesses. And he said, you know, when businesses have customer segments and what happens and what a a disruption essentially is when your competitor comes in and goes after a low end customer segment and wins that customer segment and the incumbent, the rich, successful, technologically advanced company doesn't even bother to fight back because they say, we don't care about that customer segment. That customer segment is not valuable to us. We're actually better off not selling stuff to them than selling stuff to them. 
And so in his theory, the way disruptors win is they win from the bottom. They take these customer segments and go upwards and upwards and upwards, and eventually they take over the whole market. And so it turns out that pattern recurs in industry after industry time and time again. And so something that he identified in originally in the disk drive industry turns out to happen all over the place. It happens at, you know, in, in, in construction equipment and in steel and in cars and just, just you name it, it's everywhere. And so taking a theory from disk drives to many different types of industries is making the theory more abstract and making it more generalizable, right? Because you're stripping out from disk drive speed and disk drive density to something a little bit broader about, you know, customer segments, things like that. So what I was saying is, okay, militaries don't have customer segments. So you can't think about it. You're not all the way there yet. What I, what I needed to do was understand what is the theory actually, right? What is a customer segment at a more abstract level, at a more general level? And to me, what that answer was, that's a priority, right? That, that every, if, customer, if businesses have customer segments, organizations have priorities, right? They have a hierarchy of things that they care about. Hmm. And so there's the thing they care about most, and then second most, and third most, and things they don't care about at all, right? And so what was actually, ha- so if in a business, you were saying they were going up to the low value customer segments, from a more abstract model, from an organizational model, what was happening, what you were saying is, the competitors were going after low priority tasks, hmm. right? Yeah. That's what was going on. And so for me, I think, I think the first thing that sort of Clay saw was someone who was doing, taking the, what he had already done, taking his theory, his, you know, his brilliant insight and making it more general so that it went from one industry to many industries. That was the, what he had already done and was just taking the next step, which he would, you know, he was a business school professor. He would have had, like, if, if he had, he, he was a genius. If he had had reason to do that, he would have done it. But right, that was that was not as a business school professor something I think he you know he he was going to be thinking about at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he saw someone who was like, well, yeah, but you can take your ideas and if you strip them down a little, you strip them down even further, you find out that they are even more powerful mm-hmm. than we knew already, right? So that's I mean that's that's interesting. Yeah. Um, the second thing I think is is I say is that, and this is something I would tell my students when they were when 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 they were doing their PhD, is so what I like to do is this things from many different fields. Right. So I was a I was a political scientist who spent seven years in an organizational behavior department at a business school. And as far as I know, I was the only political scientist in the country who was who was in an organizational behavior department. Um, and that was, you know, that that had its difficulties, but was also really interesting because um, okay, so there's a concept in this is and this is an example of the of what I of what I'm describing. There's a concept in paleontology, okay, where if you see the fossils of the two organisms, right? Two, two types of animals. And they have organs that are very similar, right? So say um, fish, right? Uh, sharks have fins and dolphins have fins, okay. right? And the fins for sharks and the fins, fins for dolphins look exactly the same. Um, so what's going on here, right? So there, there are two things that can happen. One is those fins can be a product of common descent, right? So the reason they have the same structure is because they're related to one another. And so every type of shark has fins that look exa- that look very similar because all sharks are related to one another, right? That makes sense. Right. But sharks and dolphins are not related to one another, right? Dolphins are mammals and sharks are not. Right. In fact, dolphins are the descendant of land animals, right. whereas sharks have had fins, you know, going back. They, sharks never left the oceans. Dolphins are the descendant of animals that were in the oceans, went on the land, evolved legs, and then went back into the water and re-evolved fins. Okay. So that's, I mean, that's cool, right? Like, like that's just a cool thing to know about the world. Whales and dolphins, the reason they breathe air is because they're the descendant of land land animals. But they still have fins that look like shark's fins. Mm. And so the reason for that, they say, is that, right, this is the second idea, is that when you have two organs that are not, that have organs from two animals that are not from a common line of descent, but that nonetheless have the same structure, it is in response to the to, to similar circumstances. Hmm. So sharks and dolphins both have fins because fins are the right answer to get around in the water. Hmm. Right? It's not common descent. It is because the particular dynamics of being in the ocean mean hmm. you should, or, or in a lake, mean you should evolve fins, right? Huh. So what that means is, to, to, so, so is if you see two structures that are the same and they're not you know, from a common descent, you know that they exist in, the, in similar environments. 
So you can learn a lot about the environment for the, of the animal from its structure by looking at it that way. Wow. So what does that mean for me? I'm looking at Clay's theories and I'm saying, okay, they apply in a, mili- in a, in a business world. And I think they also apply in a military world. And I tested that and I showed a way that they do apply in the military world. Mm. So what that tells me is that the dynamics that drive his theory must be only the things that the military and the business and business have in common. Wow. Because if because if it's something that's in one or the other, it can't be part of the theory because that you're still getting the same outcome. Yeah. And so going to all these very you know so I mean like I think it's I I I study lots of things because I'm interested in everything. Right. I was on Jeopardy. Right. Like I'm just interested in everything. There there's almost no topic on earth you I, I, that you couldn't get me to be like oh I, I'd read a book on that sure. <laughs> but but if you're like that, it can be a problem or an advantage. And the way you turn into advantage is you got to learn from the what what you got to you got to be able to bridge these two different er- you know lots of different areas and put them together. Yeah. And so if you're an academic, you know, if you're a social scientist, the way I am, what you are is you're you're a, you're a theory building machine. Um, a mathematician was once defined as a machine for turning coffee into theorems. Um, and so, so if you're a social scientist, what you do is you try and create theories. Um, and that sounds very academic, but actually, um, as uh, Nathan Noria, the dean of business, the Harvard Business School, and I was there, would always say correctly, there's nothing more practical than a good theory. Huh. Because good theories are how you understand the world, and they're what give you leverage to try and make shape the world in your direction. Right. If you are the United States military and you, somebody gives you a theory that explains why you are struggling to deal with this kind of asymmetric threat and how you should change to do it, that theory might sound very academic, but it's also very practical. Yeah, for sure. Right? And so that's what I was trying. That's what I, that was what I was trying to do is by seeing that you could learn about the theory by seeing how it applied in lots of different areas. Totally. What a beautiful explanation you're tied together so many things and i wrote down something and you kind of actually hit on it which was i'm sure you've read range by david oh Edmund. yes yeah he was oh. he was he was actually on uh he was on my podcast uh he's he's fantastic i i didn't see that but uh not shocked after everything you said um but then i also wrote down like simplifier and then what i'm like to synthesize if i'm doing it correctly is your wide range of experiences and learnings and insights across many topics allows you to maybe look at something and take out the heart of it and simplify it in a way that creates application into other areas. And so actually, like you said, it might be an advantage or a disadvantage. You're taking these wide range of interests in your dynamic nature to simplify complex things into ways that are applicable for everyday people to use them. And that was a gift. I mean, I hope so. That's certainly my ambition, right? Is so the, the, what I try to do. So the, my first book um, came out in 2012. It was called Indispensable, When Leaders Really Matter. It was trying to understand how, you know, how it, when is it that an individual leader has an impact on an organization for better or for worse, right? So where do the best and worst leaders come from? The first book. And my second book was trying to apply those theories specifically to presence of the United States and try and give people a set of tools, basically, that would say, allow us to analyze a presidential candidate and say, regardless of party, right, whether or not I agree with this person, or they am I a Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter. Just can I say with some confidence, this person could do the job. I feel comfortable with the idea of this person in the White House, even if they're not my candidate, right? That's, that's what the second book is about. And both books, I mean, so both books are peer review, right? So they're both, they go through that whole academic process of review, blind review and credits and things like that. But my goal in writing them was to say that, okay, they were researched at a standard that could stand up to the highest level of peer review, just like an academic journal or an, an academic press, which is what they were. But anyone could read them, not just read them, but could enjoy reading them, mm. right? That, that, you, that they had to be both. That was what I wanted. That was, that was the task I set myself for both books because I was not interested in writing something that would only be read by 10 people, right? That, that, that did not seem worth anybody's time to me. And so that was what I was trying to do with both of those is, is take that and drive take the ideas and make them something that anyone, you know, that anyone could understand, even if they didn't read political science or organizational behavior literature. Yeah. Got it. And so you essentially, you applied that, um, those wide range of interest and simplification to things and brought that into your books to help make that help them be enjoyed by the everyday reader on, you know, two topics with similar, but you know, different, different areas of reading. 
Beautiful. Um, definitely want to get more into the books and how you've developed that. So, well, I think this conversation has just been fascinating all around because like understanding your preceding interests and then how you showed up and then maybe challenged or showed, you know, Clay, you know, about how his work could be applied. And then, you know, he said to you at the end, Hey, six years, five years from now, when you're done, you should consider being an HBS faculty. Take us to graduation and like what happened after you, you said, okay, you know, maybe I should be a faculty and I should go on this journey, you know, where were you in life then? And like, how did, how did everything kind of unfold for you um, after that graduation moment once the seed was planted in your head? So in academia, you apply for jobs before you graduate. So, um, so a few years later, uh, probably, five, I guess I say five years later, um, I applied for a position in his department at the business school. Um, and I, and I, you know, I interviewed for it and the interview went very well. If I wanted, and, you know, he, he, he and I both thought it was sort of, you know, it was definitely going to happen. And then this was right after the financial crisis. And it turned out that even Harvard was affected by the financial crisis and it didn't happen. I was, you know, I was like, well, this is, this is quite upsetting. Like, um, you know, we, we'd, we'd sort of been planning on this for a long time. And, you know, um, and so I did a postdoc um, at, at MIT for a year, right? So I just stayed at MIT for another year, as, as, except I graduated and I did it as, as a postdoc. And so that was, I took that time to turn my dissertation into a book. And so I then applied to lots of other schools and I stayed in touch with Clay. And he said, you know, I'm really, so, you know, he, we, we both really hope this would work and we thought it would, but it didn't. But I said, you know, why not? So I applied. So Clay's department was the technology and operations management department. And so they focused on innovation. And that was about half the work I had done was on innovation. But the other half of the work I did was on leadership. And there was a different department at the business school called the organizational behavior department that focused a lot on leadership. Yeah. And so I was like, you know what? Let me apply there. You know, why not? Let's 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 see how that goes. And so I did. Um, and so I didn't hear anything from them for months and months. So I'd completely forgotten all about it. Um, and then just when I had decided, well, I guess I wasn't going to be a professor after all, which was okay. Cause I never really, never really planned on being one. It was, you know, I was actually about to call McKinsey and go back, uh, say, Hey, can I go back? Um, my, my uh, I, I get a phone call from that, that second department, the organizational behavior department and pick up the phone. And this wonderful professor named Robin Ely says, you know, I'm Robin Ely. I'm from the Harvard business school's, uh, department. Would you, would, would you like to interview for a job at the, in the, in our department? And I, instead of answering, I started laughing. I think she was a little offended. She said, you know, why are you laughing? And I finally stopped laughing. I said, so does anyone ever say no? <laughs> um, and then she started laughing too. She said, okay, yeah, probably no one ever says no when I asked that question. <laughs> um, so so then I, I interviewed with that department. And um, and so I, you know, I did my job talk and Clay, that's how you interview in a, in a, in a, in a university. You do what's called a job talk where you present on your on your research. And Clay shows up at my, you know, by our job talk, it's, you know, in the back of the room and everybody recognizes him, recognizes him and sort of, you know, what's Clay doing? Yeah, well, Clay never comes to our, to our, to our talks. Why is he here? And then, mm-hmm. then it became clear. And a few weeks after that, they called me to say, hey, we would actually would like you to join the faculty after all. So mm-hmm. a very circuitous route, not the one either he or I planned, but, uh, but it worked out for the best. Wow. I mean, yeah, it's funny how life happens when, uh, you know, you're going on a course and you get thrown off and things come back probably better than you would have expected before, but it took up, you know, some sidetrack to get there. Did you know, did you know Clay was going to show up or was that, or was that, did he tell you or was that a surprise to you? Uh, I had, I had told him I was going to be speaking, mm-hmm. but I did not expect to come because I knew how busy he was. And I was just sort of, you know, Clay, just so you know, I'm going to be on campus, but don't, you know, like it would never even have occurred to me to ask him to come because he was, he, you know, he, he was, the demands on his time were far too great, but he made the time. Yeah. But it shows clearly how much he cared and how much he wanted to be there for you. I mean, how, yeah. how, how special then you got to give yourself some, you know, testament, you know, to your own hard work and journey as well. I hope so. I mean, he, he was, a he, he was, he, I, I still miss him a great deal. He was a great, he, he was a great man. Yeah. No, oh, it sounds like what a tremendous influence. Um, talk to, you know, what I'm curious about, you know, is as a professor, as someone who teaches and is a faculty, you know, what do you find? I mean, tell us a little bit more about what you're sharing knowledge on, but what do you find the most rewarding part of your job? And are you looking for other godoms, so to speak, and trying to be that model of clay that he was for you? I mean, I'm just curious, you know, 
how you show up day in and day out kind of on this journey. I would hope to be, um, you know, we, we, you can only aspire to be someone like him. You can't, you know, I, I don't know if anyone gets to live up to his example, but for me, what I would say is that, it, I mean, teaching is, teaching is the best thing in the world, right? Like, like, um, like it is the thing that when you're an academic, most academics go into academia because they like research. Uh, and I like research too. Like I love writing I, and I, I, you know, I, I never want to stop writing books or thinking, thinking about, thinking about, uh, about trying to solve problems that way. But but teaching is fulfilling in a way that nothing else is. Hmm. Um, so like, uh, I would say that I, you know, what, what, what I kept more than anything else was the note, you know, was the, and you know, you, you, if you, when you, when you become a good teacher, you start to get a few of these right every year that you changed my life notes, yeah. right. The, um, the, you know, that I, you know, my, my career path changed because of this, or I, you know, I, I would teach on leadership. I say is that teaching on leadership is actually, it's indistinguishable from teaching about ethics. You got to do both. Um, uh, so, so, and so, you know, like I, you know, I changed my career path or I applied this in my family, you know, like there was something in my family life that we talked about because of that. And so like to this day, I still get, you know, like, like once a week or so, I'll say, I'll get a phone call from a former student saying, Hey, I just want to talk about X. Do you, do you have time? And that's, those are the calls for which I will always make time, right? Mm-hmm. Like no matter what's going on in my life, if you were a former student and you want to talk, you know, I will, I will find a way to make that happen. Yeah. And I was telling them that if, you know, if you don't hear back from me in 48 hours, you need to message me again. Then, right, I'm not ignoring you. It just means something happened and you need to make sure I'm number one in your inbox. So if any of my students are listening to this, you, uh, you know, if you don't hear from me two days, call me, you know, message me again. No, I'm just saying is that there's, um, when you're a teacher, you know, being a teacher is a privilege, right? You're, you know, because st- your, your students are trusting you to influence them in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for my first few years in the faculty, almost all my students were older than I was. So it, it felt a little weird. And, um, you know, my PhD students were, um, my, you know, the PhD student I worked most closely with was not just older than I am. I'd say he's literally, he and Clay are the two human beings I most admire of anyone I've ever met. Right. And so I was like, you know, I was like looking at my quote unquote student as someone who I wanted to learn from instead of the other way around. That experience is is something that it's twofold. One is you get a chance to look at people. And when you're and I was I've been very lucky to have the sort of students who are going, you know, who I know are going to go off and do amazing things. Mm. So you can shape their course a little bit that that's, you know, that that's that's leaving a legacy and something that's that's pretty powerful. And the second is thing is, is you learn a lot about yourself. Yeah. Like teaching is a reflection. Teaching is always a reflection of who you are. Sure. And so what I focus on with them often tells me what I care about hmm. at that moment in my life as well. Yeah. D- dive, uh, dive deeper on that. What, what do you think? Um, Go ahead. So, so I often, so for example, as I said that, that leadership and ethics thing, right? There's a big thing there. So I am a political scientist by training. I taught, teach leadership by vocation. And for me, Right, core class almost always becomes not always, you know, well, not all, well, not almost always, often becomes a discussion about what is the right thing to do, not you know, not meaning what's going to what's going to make your career succeed, but but what is the thing that you will be proud of, right? What is the thing that actually is the right thing to do that is morally and ethically the right thing to do? So, if you were in somebody else's class, you would have gotten a very different, you know, like. And this is not a criticism of them. They have, you know, they have other things that of my, well, so my colleagues have other things that we care about. They're probably, you're probably not going to get the same focus of, of like, how do we think about the ethics and the responsibility, right? I'm a, I say that as a political scientist, um, what, what political science is more than anything else is it is the study of power. So you don't go into political science unless what you're in, in, in the business of is thinking about power and what it means and hopefully how to use it responsibly and how it changes you. If you're going to become a leader, you're going to be a person who has power. And so you better think about what that power means yeah. and what it means for you and how you want to use it. Because if you, if you only start thinking about that after you've gotten it, it will be too late. Yeah, for sure. Well, one, I loved your answer. Uh, I read a book called uh, Power for All. It might be mm-hmm. Julie Badalana. She's a yeah. dear, dear, dear friend. She's wonderful. Oh, her, yeah, her, you should have her, her on the show, actually. Yeah. Her, her well, her co-author came on last week. And oh, oh Katiziana. Yeah, sure. She and she. Anyways, we've become super close the last three months for a lot of personal yeah. things. But anyways, um, I think you're right. Right. When you're a leader, you're in a position of power and influence. Um, and you know you get to shape the minds, and you're shaping the minds of some of the brightest young individuals globally. So the impact of your work today 
could change the course of their lives for decades to come. And it comes with great responsibility, I think, as you said. One more question that I kind of want to ask you the last thing around your future and some book stuff. When you compare yourself as a student, when you were going through, you know, at MIT and, you know, working with Clay and, you know, applying, when, when you think about yourself as a student versus the students that you are teaching today, what would you say the biggest difference is or similarity in what you're noticing being a part of the country that is attracting, you know, some of the brightest young minds? The similarity is easier, right? Like, you don't because you don't do a PhD if you're talking about PhD students unless you're passionately con, you know thinking concerned about ideas like you care about ideas you care about the, uh, uh, trying to understand the truth about the world mm-hmm. using the tools of science um, that was that is what attracted me to doing a PhD and you know mm-hmm. nobody does a PhD for the money I was you know one of my co- one of my students once asked me you know why did you do a PhD it's like I said well I hated money and I never wanted to see it again um, so. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> So, uh, so that's the, 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 so you do PhD because it because it, it matters to you that kind of thing, right? So that that's similar. And when I look at the MBA students, you see, you know, the, the um, uh, I, don't, I don't teach MBAs at the moment, but I, I did for seven years, right? What you see is um, it's the, the, there's what I hope that I had at that age, the sort of the, the sort of drive, the, the the ambition, the sense of to do not just do things that matter, do things that are big, but to do things that matter. And I'm always touched by how much my students. Right, despite all the stereotypes, uh, unfair ones, I think mostly of Harvard MBAs, how much they really, really wanted, you know, they wanted to do big things, but they wanted to do big, good things. Yeah. It mattered to them that they were in that place. That, that meant a lot to me. Um, the difference, I think, is the, if, you know, most of my students, not all, but most of my students are Americans. And the, the 10 to 15, you know, the 10 years in age that separates us now. Um, have not, on the whole, been good years in the United States, right? They, they, like lots of bad things have happened, you know, from 9/11 to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to to the Trump years to the COVID, like lot like like a, a chain of catastrophes and 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 horrors. And they look at the future, and in the world of climate change, with climate change, and I'll say like, um, you know, the uh, one of my one of my podcast episodes was on climate change. Says that if you if you are a leader, you need to be thinking about climate, right? Climate change, because unless you are deeply immersed in that field, your estimate of its impact is low by multiple orders of magnitude, right? Mm-hmm. Let me. I want to. I want to emphasize that statement, right? If, if unless you are deeply immersed in what climate change means for the world, and probably even if you are, however important you think climate change will be over the next ten or fifteen or twenty years, you are off by orders of magnitude. You probably don't even have one percent. Of the real impact. That's how enormous the scale of what the challenge were. So, but my students quite often do understand that. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so, what 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 sort of worries me, and where I where I feel concerned is, I had a sense, an you know, optimistic sense, right? Not having not not seeing all of these various things coming down the pipe. That when I was you know when I was twenty five, or even when I was thirty, or you know probably even you know even 32, 33, 34, um, that the world was, you know, the world was on a good trajectory, right? That, that you know, whatever happened to me person, personally, I had this sense that things were going to get better on the whole. And, you know, and this, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? Like, you know, e- you know, like no, even if things went, went badly for me, they weren't going to go that badly because things on the whole were good and getting better. And I think too many of my students fear, not wrongly, that the world is not getting better, right? That things are getting worse. Um, that the the range of possibilities of what people might aspire to be has been has narrowed. And those fears are not right, they're not they're not ill-founded. The global financial crisis happened in two thousand and eight, and and it was the greatest economic downturn since the Great Depression. And the pe- and you know, and in the United States, the people who did it were rewarded, and the people and and everyone else suffered, right? that that should appall you that should you know you should feel a questioning the future when you see something like that happen and that's just one example among many right um and so the only thing that i i where i hope to leave them when i say this difference is you know if i if my, i was naively optimistic what i think is they are too they are in, in a sense naively pessimistic it's mm. true that things these all these things have happened and that's you know that's bad but 
if that becomes an excuse for cynicism, what I, I always say is cynicism is lazy. Right? Hmm. Cynicism is believing the worst in uh, the believing of the worst in, uh, in, uh, in the world and in other people. And it, it, it is a default, right? It, it's a way to seem sophisticated without actually being sophisticated. <laughs> um, and so, and, and at the end of the day, what it is, it is not empowering. It is disempowering. It is saying that because everything, you know, everyone is bad and the world will always turn out the worst. It is a way of saying, therefore, I need not, do not need to do anything. So if I want to circle back, if we want to circle back to where we started at the beginning, it says, you know, I teach leadership. If I don't think leaders have an ability to change the world, I have wasted most of my life, right? So I do think that. So it is true that I would say that things have not gone as well as we would, as I would have hoped 10 or 15 years ago. It does not mean that a fate is set in stone, right? If you teach leaders, then you have to believe that they have the chance to change that trajectory. And so that is not a message of fear, right? That's not a message of, of despair. That's a message of hope. If you do not like what the world looks like today, well, get out there and change it. You have that power. Yeah, wow. I think it's so interesting that you compared you being cautiously optimistic, but you look at the last couple of decades and you say, oh, eh, these aren't the best. And so students of today are you know, more uh, pessimistic, uh, hopefully rightfully so that maybe it makes them want to solve bigger world problems. Gautam, this has been amazing. Unfortunately, it's the top of the hour. I feel like we could go another two hours. I, mean, I wish we could have talked more about your books. Where can people find your books? Where people can, can they find your podcast? Tell us where to connect sure. with you and um, we'll make sure we do this episode justice. Well, thank you. So I am at Gmukunda, G-M-U-K-U-N-D-A on Twitter. Uh, my first book, Indispensable, When Leaders Really Matter, is on Amazon. You can find it. My second book, Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Important Decision in the World, will be coming out in October from the University of California Press. Uh, you can't find it on Amazon yet, but you will be able to soon. Uh, and my podcast is uh, World Reimagined with Gotham Makunda. It's, uh, it it's NASDAQ's World Reimagined by Gotham Makunda. It is uh, hosted by and created by NASDAQ, and I, I, pick, I, I do the guests and interview all of them. And you can find that pretty much in any podcasting service in the world, uh, at Spotify, or, or Stitcher, you name it, we are there. Uh, you'll even see us in, time, in NASDAQ's 40-foot-tall billboard in Times Square on occasion. They'll, they'll even have us up there. Amazing. So, um, <laughs> wow. So please check us out. You will, you will enjoy. If you, if you like this, you will enjoy the podcast. Well, this was... Uh... I mean, it's only Monday, but by far the best com best hour I've spent today, hopefully for the next week. So thank you for your insights and knowledge. What a great conversation. Excited to get your voice out there and your work. Thanks for all you do. Well, thank you, Brian. Really appreciate this. That was a blast. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.